Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Hi, and welcome to this episode with Kimberly Ann Johnson. Kimberly is a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing practitioner, author, podcast host, and more. Kimberly did a talk a while ago called Sex That Changes the World, and I love the title so much as I really do believe sex has the power to change the world for good. I mean, look at how it influences the world now. And I see Kimberly as what you might call a thought leader of our time, and I really value her thinking, her perspective, her experience. And we talked about many things, the landscape of sex and relationships in current times. She's talked about how to support the young people in your life. And she shares her wisdom on sex that can change the world, motherhood, the feminine power, and much more. And Kimberly shares not just her experience as a practitioner, but also her personal perspective as a woman and a mom of a teenage daughter. And I'd really love to hear what this conversation stirs inside you. Enjoy. Welcome to today's episode and today I'm really delighted to be joined today by Kimberly Ann Johnson. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. Really looking forward to this conversation and I'd love to start with you introducing yourself to anybody who is listening who doesn't know you because I know there'll be a number listening who do follow your work but for those who don't. Mm. Well I my name's Kimberly, and I live in San Diego, California, which is where I'm from, where I was raised. I live with my daughter, who's 15, and I'm recently married, but my husband lives in Brazil, so we're not living in the same country yet. And in my work and professional life, I spend most of my time masterminding ways for women to prepare for birth, recover from birth, uh, advocating for postpartum practices that are physiological and holistic, and trying to build mother culture around those practices, and helping women heal from sexual boundary ruptures. And I do that right now, educating people, teaching big classes online, um, you know, documentary film projects, conversations on my own podcast. And then as far as like what I kind of did before this, that gave me the information and access to what it is that I teach. I, I did an incubation period of about three years where I saw 800 women and I worked hands in hands on. So I'm a sex, probably the, on your podcast, people know what a sexological body worker is but I'm a sexological body worker and a somatic experiencing practitioner. So I put those two skills together to be able to help women heal kind of everything pelvic, gynecological, and 
sexual. Wow. And you, um, you've written a couple of books. Love to hear a little yeah. bit about those. Yeah. So I wrote a book called The Fourth Trimester, a postpartum guide to healing your body, balancing your emotions and restoring your vitality. And that book is a response to my own postpartum time, which was really confusing for me after being a longtime yoga teacher and body worker. I just didn't think it was going to be too hard for me to become a mom because it was something I really wanted. And it was something that I, I'd always babysat a lot and I'm the oldest in my family, but I had a couple of physical things that went on in addition to being in a new relationship and living in a country that I wasn't, I was newly familiar with. And so as a, I, I was feeling really down, but when I would make Google searches about holistic postpartum care or alternative healing, all that would come up was postpartum depression. And I knew that I would be clinically diagnosed as depressed, but I knew there was something much more that was going on with me because I was so confused about what I ended up finding out was prolapse, incontinence, scar tissue that hadn't healed, um, a relational situation that was really challenging for me. So that first book I wrote, and it's amazing, it's been translated into eight languages, it's required reading at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, which is an acupuncture college here, but it's also required reading at Kaiser, which is one of the hospitals. And um, it's just, you know, it, it. I published it five and a half years ago, and it's really gone on to influence a lot of the way that people have thought about taking, getting taken care of or taking care of themselves after they have a baby. And it, and like I said, it's it's not based on me having had the perfect postpartum time. It's based on me not having it and trying to figure out what happened and trying to figure out like what, how did, how did somebody like me who was so embodied and had done so much spiritual practice, so much physical practice. I mean, I, I, I taught a kind of yoga where the foundation of every pose was the pelvic floor. So it's like, I knew everything about the pelvic floor. So I thought until I entered into this space that was entirely feminine and realized, Oh, I was doing gender neutral practice that it just doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or whoever you are. It's just like, this doesn't matter. And birth really showed me, oh no, it actually really does matter. So that was the offering from that experience. And then two years ago, I wrote a book called, well, I wrote it before that, but it came out two years ago, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power and Use It for Good. That book really should be titled How Women Healed Trauma because it's about the difference between female nervous systems and male nervous systems. And as anyone listening would know, um, those are controversial categories now. So I couldn't call the book How Women Heal Trauma. But essentially, that is what that book is about. And that book is a culmination of something that unlike my first book was something I didn't have in the second book is really about everything that I've learned in my journey of reconstructing my own nervous system, my sexuality, knowing that womanhood is a big part of that. And then I just recently co-wrote a book with Stephen Jenkinson that's called Reckoning. That's about grief and elderhood and spirit work in a me first era. He's 68, I'm 48. We come from very different, um, well, we come from different countries, which is just funny in and of itself because Americans basically think Canada is like North America, but they just are like a little more out sporty and a little bit um, nicer, <laughs> but uh, turns out it's not true. So um, yeah, so that book 
is my most recent book. And then the fourth trimester has a journal and a deck of cards that go with that. And then I, maybe what we've, we will talk about today, but I released a six hour audio training called Reclaiming the Feminine Embodied Sexuality as Spiritual Practice with Sounds True about a year and a half ago. And actually that's probably, it could be one of the least known things that I've done, but it could be one of the best things that I've done. Uh, it's a, it's kind of like me whispering practices and inspiration and like just the right amount of like facts that you need to know. <laughs> and I got a lot of emails from men and women actually who listened to it together, just saying like, this is one of the most helpful things we've listened to in our marriage to try to unlock what's happening with us in our intimacy and sexuality and relationship. Wow. And what do you feel is on there that is helping unlock that for people? Uh, well, I don't know exactly because I don't know what information they've had to this point, but I do know that, you know, you and I who work in sexuality, our Instagram and Facebook feeds are filled with um, vulva imagery and uh, calls to action and sort of female and feminine empowerment statements. But that's certainly not the silo that a lot of people are in still. And, you know, I'm teaching a class called Mother Circle right now. And last week we did our mother sexuality class. Mm. And in that class, people talk about things like, you know, what's the relationship between your mother self and your sexual self? What's the relationship between, you know, your sexuality? Is it yours or is it shared or is it, is your child included in that? And it's just still such a shadow. It's, there's so much shame that's tied up in genuine desire or lack of desire. And everybody thinks everyone else has got it figured out. So I think that there's just some relief. I don't come across as a very like sex forward person. So I think people don't expect me to be talking about sexuality and somehow that makes it feel a little bit safer. Mm -hmm. Also, because I'm a mom, I think that a lot of like sexuality coaches and advice that's out there is coming from people who haven't had children. And sometimes that's hard to relate to when you have had children. Uh, and so much of it is also about like reconfiguring relationship rather than working within the relationship, because nowadays there's so much incentive to open your relationship and like maybe maybe it's monogamy that's the problem. And, you know, maybe there, you know, so it's, I think it's just kind of relieving to hear the simplicity and the innocence that's, that comes with really giving oneself permission and being brave enough to start where you are and not start with what you want or where you think you should be or what the image of good sex or good relating or good intimacy is. And I think that's that invitation really comes through in the program. Mm, yeah. And I think it's really refreshing. I had an email off a woman today and just saying how she'd been in the exploring online with sexuality and different things and actually how her and her husband felt worse after doing all of that than mm. when they started and just felt so inadequate and worried they were getting it wrong. And it just tapped into all of these things. So I think mm. that invitation to start where you are is really refreshing. So one of the things that, well, the main thing I really wanted to talk to you about today is, is because there's loads of, of, of the depth of your work is you did a talk 
which is titled How to Have Sex That Changes the World. And I just love that title and you've already touched on it. So I'd love to, you to, to, to share what is the sex that changes the world? Well, we could probably, you know, you know a lot about this too. So we could probably come up with a shared definition where I welcome the things that you would add to it. Uh, I think there's a lot of components. One of them is having sex that you want to have. That seems really simple, but it's not simple. There's a lot of people listening who are either avoiding sex because they don't know how to have the sex they want to have. They don't know how to talk about it. They have a sense that it's out there because almost every woman that I've ever worked with understands that sexuality is like this amazing treasure chest. And every once in a while, they've glimpsed the treasures but they don't have the key to the chest and they're just kind of wondering like, how do I get in there? Because I know there's like access to magic and creativity and some parts of myself that I can't reach any other way, but how do I get in there? So I think it starts with having sex that you want to have, um, not that you feel obligated to have, um, not that you have somehow seen as the thing that you're supposed to do. Um, I know you and I have both worked with a lot of people who are even having painful sex. And the reason they're going through with it is because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And then when I say to them, well, does your partner know that you're in pain? They say no. And I would say, well, if he did know, do you think he would still want it? And they say no. But it's never just even come up to the surface of their conscious mind to question. So it just lives in this kind of other other realm or other space that they go to so yeah sex that you want to have um connected sex so I think that even in all of the flavors that sex can take and I personally enjoy many of them probably most of them uh there do seem to be habits that we get into and the sex that feels revelatory is usually the sex that's outside of our habits and so I like to help to teach people how to reach that place where it feels like a pure contact. And I think that a lot of people, when they think about hot sex or multiple orgasms, there's, a, there's an image of what that is. And there's kind of also an image of who gets that. And so there's a seeking after what that perception of it would be. So sex that changes the world is, can we be in, in our body moment to moment? And of course, the answer to that is no, we can't all the time. But do we have the language to communicate about that? Uh, are we choosing someone to engage with that can also be a part of that process together? I think there's a lot out there, especially sexually, maybe not relationally as much anymore, because I think relational paradigms have really shifted where it used to be like you're having a relational conflict. Each of you should just go deal with your own stuff and then come back together. I think nowadays with attachment theory, there's more understanding that like you need to be with one another because that's when the materials most evoked. But sexually, I think there's, um, there is this now idea like, well, your orgasms, your orgasm and my orgasm is my orgasm. And so like the, the answer to this is I'm going to have my self-pleasure practice. And I think self-pleasure practice is 
awesome and wonderful and important. And it's not the same as being sexual with someone else. So it could, you know, there's a lot of sort of cliches out there now, like, well, you have to learn what your own body likes in order to tell somebody else what you like. But there is a way that that learning can happen in tandem with someone else. And there's a lot of, I mean, anyone who's ever had good sex, even once, and sex can just mean contact, engagement, where arousal energy is present, understands how that helps you relate with the rest of the world. You know, like there's this, there's an idea, the stereotype is like you're singing or you're whistling, but it's true because there's more joy that's available to you. And so you have more compassion for other people at the same time, right? Like if you're really connecting intimately and you feel that you're, there's this level of satisfaction and a level of being loved or cherished or adored or turned on that, that also impacts how you look at the world around you. And I mean, we live in a very highly polarized um, world where words like now anxiety and depression, psychological terms are now ubiquitous and almost anyone relates to like five-year-olds are saying they're stressed out. I'm like, how does your five-year-old know that word? And why is that the word that's being chosen? So more than ever, we need connection to the pleasure hormones because those prime us to be able to have a wider capacity, a wider resilience and lens to be the people in our community that can hold the full range of what's happening and, and what will continue to happen as these next decades progress. So I think the opposite is what people are having less sex than ever. I mean, statistically, this is what's true. People are having less sex. People are, are deciding that they want less commitment. And those are survival features. I mean, there's two survival responses. Sometimes it's, you know, like a lot of the early pandemic babies. It's when you feel that there's an epidemic coming on, then people naturally start to procreate more. But the other one is I'm going to isolate. And I'm, even though I'm lonely and isolated, I'm out of practice of how to come into contact with someone else. And maybe I have politics that also are creating a lot of barriers between me and just relating to somebody else. That's really huge right now. Um, I, I have a 15 year old, so I hear all about it because the way that she talks about relating, the way that she talks about males, the way, you know, all of the gender stuff that's going on in her school, a lot of it is about disarming your instincts rather than honing your instincts. And this is something I feel very passionate about because my whole career has been about helping women restore their instincts. That's if they're, I mean, my whole career is either about, even before this chapter of it, even when I was a yoga teacher, it was all about like, how do we get out of the habits that are keeping us from accessing what our true vitality and life force is? And I've taught that for in every realm that I've taught in. And then now what I see, even with my daughter and her friends, is like they feel uncomfortable about things, but they're not allowed to feel uncomfortable because that means you are a something. And so they just are continually disarming what their instincts are at the same time as they have these really sophisticated ideological points of view about how they should feel based on being a good person or an ally or whatever those, whatever it is that you're supposed to be to be accepted. Because 
um, nowadays acceptance is based on having certain political frameworks and those have to be, they're coded in language. So to me, um, first of all, sex that changes the world is like, there's a, there's a big bridge to get there that includes touch, that includes um, an ability to even get close physically to someone else. I would assume right now that many more people would need a lot more holding before getting to deeper layers of intimacy because there's been so much separation in the last few years. I've noticed that in myself and I'm not sure if that's based on being perimenopausal or, or and also because I live so far away from my husband that like it's just not so easy for me to to step over and I'm not even talking about foreplay I'm just talking about like basic presencing contact that's like I'm here and you're here and we're really here and this is really happening and my experience is that because of the way that we've been taught about sexuality which is like the basis and it's like oral sex oral sex penetration that's still in the unconscious even if our ideological framework is otherwise and so slowing that down and realizing how much more is available really opens up a much wider repertoire of not I was going to say self-understanding but it's much it's much broader than that because it 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 opens up erotic energy that's really available in all the time whether or not you're in sexual space mm. yeah and how, how do you define erotic energy uh, I define it as the life force that moves through all that is alive yeah and you know now that I've been working more with Stephen Jenkinson it's the conversation between Thanatos who's the god of death and Eros is the god of life is more alive in me and how those require one another because I think that's the other thing I have so many people that they confess to me that they cry a lot during sex and like what's wrong with them and I'm like no that's something's going right like I mean if it's the only thing that's happening and you feel you know gutted for like weeks and months on end but like this would be the place that the, your full expression would be allowed to move and that there would be unexpected emotions unexpected movements unexpected imagery like this is how our systems know how to unwind themselves in a way that isn't therapy and but is very therapeutic and I think people feel like, oh, well, my partner shouldn't be my therapist. And I had a great conversation with Davy Ward Erickson, who is the founder of the Authentic Tantra School. And she's she was like, well, it's happening anyway. Like, you don't have to make your partner your therapist. But this if you're having if you're in great contact, it's going to happen anyway. So we might as well be well versed in how to be with one another. And it is just very human to have the most the earlier parts of ourselves and the the parts of ourselves that feel unlovable and the parts of ourselves that feel that remember other things to come to the surface. And so that's also why I think it's just such a, an efficient place to, to move things that yeah. aren't moving. Yeah. The depth of healing that's available in that space and just that whole happens so organically. Um, yeah. You know, whether and then that... like the, 
the I guess it's it's a place to me it's about maturation right because people think pleasure means that something should feel good all the time and we definitely need to know how to be with things that feel good that's just a basic principle of even trauma healing people think of healing trauma and they think oh we're just going to go in all the dark spaces but that's that doesn't actually work you can't heal trauma in only the dark spaces which would be like going into just the thanatos realm but the converse is true when we go into pleasure realm of course there will be grief of course there will be loss of course there will be disappointment of course there will be sadness as much as that hopefully there will be pleasure and joy and delight and laughter and hilarity and you know the full spectrum of what's possible but i think that when people are having sex that they want to have and that includes just because you know nowadays when you say anything like if i say to people i work with the female nervous system the the next thing they say is well what about men and then the next thing they say is what about trans people and i'm like what about them there's people who work with those nervous systems i work with female nervous systems it's descriptive it's not ideological it's just what i do when it comes to sex basic pieces of information like the fact that female arousal takes so much longer than male arousal because of how our physiology works not for any other reason just because the physiology works differently people all of a sudden think well what about male pleasure well what about this my experience has been that because everything that we see externally in films in porn in on ads is based on power dynamics and it's based on high charge adrenaline connection that also happens to recruit cortisol networks. It's not so frequent that people have seen something that we could call a female arousal trajectory, but we could also call oxytocin circuitry. So that we, most people, the only time I've ever seen, well, at the time since then this has changed a little bit but i had never seen any imagery of people who actually loved each other having sex until i went to sexological bodywork school so we most people haven't ever seen they've seen people having sex with each other if they've ever watched a porn or seen a movie but they haven't seen people who actually love each other and aren't also like actors and groomed for doing that thing it's a very different feeling and experience so sex that changes the world also probably will be slower some of the time or at least the possibility of being slower some of the time and probably will have an element to it that's rolling and that includes the fact that female sexuality you know for arousal takes 35 to 45 minutes when most male arousal can take 30 seconds to a minute and a half and so I think there's a reason that over time, as we get more mature, erection of all kinds becomes more complicated because I think it's a, it's a call for us to expand our imaginations and our capacity to connect that doesn't just go towards what would be reproductive sex. And it doesn't, I don't see reproduction as totally separate 
either. Like I don't, this whole thing about like the clitoris is the only organ of the body that's for pleasure. Like that's not true. Um, it definitely has a reproductive and biological function other than pleasure. So I don't subscribe to those narratives that are completely separate, but I do think that it would behoove everyone who's participating, no matter who they are, to respect the female arousal trajectory and to under, to have that capacity to stretch into both sides. And I just find that there's a lot of impatience and a lot of people haven't learned the urgency and the and the power of the charge becomes so overwhelming that it feels like it has to be satisfied right away. And that's only increasing with social media. It's only increasing with the level of intensity of information that's coming at us. So of course it influences our nervous system on all levels, including sexually, so that it becomes harder to be content with softer contact or, um, or moving into certain arousal space and then bringing it back down rather than thinking you always have to finish in one certain way. Yeah. Thank you for sort of taking us into, because <laughs> we don't have any reference points to see it. And so those places are so deep in our being of this is how charged hot sex looks. And so just um, how you have opened the doorway for some people listening into just how that might feel, how that might look. Um, so when it, and, and one of the things you talk about as well is the sort of centering the feminine, reclaiming the feminine within this. So first of all, how do you define the feminine? Because that's a, 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 a topic. And then what does that mean for you? So I, when I think about the feminine and I refer to it, I'm referring to it mostly from the Chinese medicine perspective of the yin. So yeah. there's no, the feminine actually doesn't even exist without the masculine. So it's coming from a polarity point of view and some people re relate to it and some people don't. It's been very useful for me. And it's also, you know, a centuries old way of looking at the world, the sun and the moon, for instance. So yin is the shadowy side of the mountain. Yang is the sunny side of the mountain. Yin is moist. Yang is dry. Yin is more rolling and undulating. Yang is more linear. Yin is uh, the dark side of the moon. Yang is the full moon. And then, of course, you know, I come from a yogic background. So in different yogic traditions and Buddhist traditions, what the feminine is actually changes. So it's not just universal. Like in Tibetan Buddhism, the feminine is the empty space, right? It's like it's the darkness out of which any the the fecund darkness out of which any creative thing can spring. But then in other traditions, it's Shakti. It's the motivating force that's wild and that you know the shiva provides the the boundaries for so i use you know i think about it in those terms and when i say reclaiming the feminine and centering you know i even the word centering at this point i feel like has become so cliched 
uh, that I, I'm having, I know I've said that before, but I'm having a hard time hearing it back and thinking that's like, is that what I want to say? Because, um, it's sort of like how patriarchy is now like a, a ubiquitously negative term that you can just say everything, like the problem with everything is patriarchy. And then there's a lot of spaces where it's like, well, matriarchy is considered to be then inherently good because patriarchy is inherently bad. Um, so I don't know a better word at the moment, but what I mean to say is that female pleasure is a part of the interaction and the knowledge of how female bodies, female cycles, uh, female reproductive journeys is a part of it. Uh, and that people of every gender would have an understanding of that because it shouldn't just be, for instance, if someone is in their fertile years and they're sexual with someone else, it shouldn't just be the female's responsibility for whatever happens out of that act that could potentially lead to getting pregnant and creating an actual life. Um, and I do feel like this is changing. I mean, my daughter knows way more about her cycles than I did when I was 15 and her friends do. And um, I have a vagina steam chair in my kitchen. So uh, a lot of her friends like come over and want to check it out. And, uh, and I know a lot of my friends' partners have apps on their phones that track their partner's cycles and they're way more aware of of how someone might be, how someone's energy might be working at different times of their cycles. Uh, but there's a lot of ground to cover when it comes to one, uh, someone defining their own, like what does sexually expressed mean to them? And I just know because I, I work with so many mothers specifically, which is such a huge threshold of a change in our sexual identity for almost everyone, that the sex that we were having prior was kind of like, we might've even loved it, but it was usually based on that kind of stereotypical model of pleasing and performing. And then when that's not possible anymore, when you have a baby and it's like, it's just at first you just can't even most people can't imagine having penetrative sex. It feels like a huge loss and it feels terrifying because it's like, I don't know who I am anymore. And I don't even know if I, now I'm realizing maybe I didn't like that as much as I thought I did. And maybe it wasn't really for me, but I thought it was, but I was really doing it for the other person. And now I have to reimagine what it means to have sex that I like and want. And my, usually the partners are totally willing and like waiting to hear like whatever you want is what I, you know, but then again, a lot of times the partners haven't practiced holding their own charge. And so any kind of um, approach feels like pressure and feels like expectation. So I would say that's also sex that changes the world is sex that doesn't have to have an end goal to it. A sex that understands when it's complete without completion having to mean discharging your energy uh, in any way, unless that's what you're choosing that you want to do. And that's what usually feels satisfying to both people is when they start to get in into relationship with this other thing that's happening because there's one person and the other person, let's just say there's two people in this situation, scenario, 
And then there's what's happening between and learning how to be devoted to like what is between. That is centering the feminine because the masculine is goal oriented in general. The masculine knows what knows what it wants is looking at the goal and going towards it without stopping. And the feminine is works cyclically and works in phases and understands that there's ebbs and flows. And uh, I think sex that changes the world world includes a lot between start and stop. You know, it includes maybe this whole like enthusiastic. I don't, I don't think that the language of consent as, as is in popular culture is taking us closer to sex that changes the world. I think it's taking us away from it because it's taking us into the mind. It's not taking us into the body. It's taking us into stereotypes and it's taking us, it's giving the amount of times I've heard my 15 year old talk about somebody that's in roughly her age group and call them a perpetrator or call them a rapist. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. Like, that's not, that's not okay. You can't like, this is a gray area. And unless this person is actually sick, which, you know, 5% of people probably are, this is just someone who's confused and doesn't, and needs orientation. So sex that changes the world is also dismantling these ideas that there's always that, you know, predator prey dynamics predators are bad men are usually predators men are bad prey is good prey is usually women women are good it's like we've got to take ourselves out of that and also realize that our sexual desires are not usually politically correct like it's not it won't align with our politics usually and that's the thing I'm also trying to my daughter told me the other day that sexuality is a social construct and I was like well not really like, I mean, you can say you are whatever you want to say that you are, but I mean, I just got real kind of crude with her and was like, look, I can just tell you right now, like, I like cock. It's not a social construct. Like it just, I can just tell you it's not because if it, if I was on an Island with a woman and it was the last person in the world, I'd get down with the pussy. But like, I, that it's just not like, that's just not where my desire goes. And it's not a, it's not a, I can tell you because I know, I know what instinct is and I know what having an instinct and disarming it feels like. So you can try to talk yourself into something and many people do, but that's not, it's not the same thing. She's just all shaking her head like, mom, I cannot believe you. And I'm like, I know, but like somebody's got to tell you like, okay, so you're just going to decide you're a lesbian. Okay, cool. Now, like put your face in some pussy and then like, tell me, how do you like it? Because it's not the same as just deciding you are something. And we live in a time where people think they can just decide with their brain what they like and and who they are and how they want to be. And it's like, no, there's actually intelligence that's in the biology and the physiology. And demonizing whole groups of people based on who they are, that doesn't work for relating. And we're, we're getting to a point where like flirting's not even okay. Like flirting is considered a boundary violation. And I'm hearing these words. I, I mean, I was just with a 10-year-old who was calling his brother a narcissist. I'm like, what? Like, like what are what is going on? So we've got to get out of these entitled labels and get back to 
learning how to perceive what someone's communicating to you through their body language, through their words. And I wouldn't say give people the benefit of the doubt because I don't think that that's also training our instincts, but we definitely need to return to a place where we can sense what's underneath the identity categories that people are coming at us with first. So, and I think it is an urgent thing because it, it down the line, it reflects on so many different, you know, if people are waiting longer to even experiment sexually, then it's probably going to follow that they're going to wait longer to actually commit if they do, but everyone's very suspicious of commitment now. And then we see what happens with extended fertility, like that doesn't go well. And the answer from the culture right now is, oh, just freeze your eggs. Like that's feminism, that's empowerment. Um, because now you don't even rely on another person. You can just buy sperm. And I don't think anyone's, ha I don't see that people are having better relationships as a result of this. And that's why I, that's why I am as, emboldened about it as I am is because I would be down with all of it if it's I looked around and I'm like oh wow people are like loving each other more and it's going better and it's not it's going worse yeah yeah I interviewed do you know Christine have you heard of Christine Ember Christine Ember is a Washington Post columnist and she's just written a book called Rethinking Sex a Provocation and she was a journalist at the time of Me Too. And she just started looking, she just started having loads of conversations about, here's all the conversations about sex where there's clear boundary violations, like Harvey Weinstein, et cetera. But there's all these people talking about sex that just wasn't great. In fact, it was quite bad, but they didn't know what to do with it and all sorts of things. And then she just, just led her through a series of research and interviews asking a lot of things you're talking about is actually when we have so much more freedom less rules than ever why do people in so many places seem to be so much more unhappy and having more of a difficult time and some of the statistics in the in the book are just uh like one of the statistics was 45 percent of adults in america a piece of research showed have given up on dating and relationships and you know just uh, there was a heap of other statistics um, and I feel that this is so important. These conversations are happening. Like what is happening? It is, an, it is important and urgent, like you say. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. I mean, that's, I think, you know, the Me Too, the second phase of Me Too in October 2017, that's when I started teaching the Jaguar work, okay. which eventually led to Call of the Wild, which because I, the night that, so Rose McGowan made a statement on Sunday and then on Monday, I was like beside myself and I recorded a Facebook video at the time there was an Instagram, I guess. And, uh, and it went viral, but everybody was like, and I got tons of shit for it too. I got called a victim blamer. I got called, um, like a woman hater because I was saying what I just said to you, this isn't going to work to just pull people down out of their positions of power and to have women on mass uh sharing some of the most vulnerable intimate details of their lives on social media without any like holding or structure or ways of renegotiating like this isn't going to lead in a good direction and here's what i think that women need to do because we all know 
like we I mean it's I think you have a child I think but mm -hmm. yep. you know ra raising a teenager is like you know it's a trip and one of the things that you do is they're experimenting with things including how they dress and the I mean these girls are wearing like tank long tank tops that are dress quote unquote dresses so their asses are basically almost out of their dresses and then they're shaming people who look at them oh they're looking at me you are deliberately provoking that's why you're wearing what you're wearing you know if you're showing your ass people are going to look at you i mean you're not wearing clothes you're not wearing enough clothes and then you're going to turn around and say that someone who looks at you is doing the wrong thing or why are they looking at you and that's a very crude example, but it's happening in all different kinds of ways. And I see it over and over. And, you know, this isn't a, a conversation to go into all the nuances of the nervous system, but it is so nervous system based because the, they are, they're performing a certain kind of visibility that their systems can't handle. And so they're overexposed and they don't have enough practice underneath of actually being able to hold the, like wear whatever you want if you know how to hold your ground if someone's going to approach you or pull their car over or you know but if you it's just it's it's like completely out of alignment of what they are actually capable of and then also what are they getting out of just I mean I'm so bereft that my daughter so she's 15 so this happened when she was nine for six years of her life, all she's been hearing about is how dangerous men are. And it doesn't matter that she has a great, my dad is great, that my husband is great, that she has, I have a lot of great men in my life. That doesn't matter because the overculture is constantly saying men are bad, patriarchy is bad, men are stupid, right? Like it's just fine to just be like, oh yeah, guys, they just don't know what they're doing, us oh, stupid boys. I spend so much, you would think, I'm, I'm probably, people are probably surprised. I spend so much of my time defending men. Like I, I do, it's crazy, but I'm like, this is, it's not okay to just discard half of the human population and imagine that this is going to go well for everyone. And I know so many, we're, we're at an age where we're turning allies into enemies, right and left. I'm like, these, this is not your enemy. So I just am telling all of her friends, it went, you know, you are going to have to teach the men that you're with or the boys that you're with about how you want sexuality to be because their influences are not giving them accurate portrayals of what great contact is. But isn't that how we are as adult women anyway? It is, our pace is the pace that dictates how things go usually, unless there's just a very mature man who's already been trained in certain ways and I don't mean train like training a dog because I don't believe that I just mean that our systems are more sensitive and more subtle and they and they it requires more communication but but for the men people then go well what about them they're going to be dissatisfied no they're not because they will get more of what they want when we know more of what we want and we can communicate it both verbally and non-verbally through non-shaming direction yeah so for people listening with parents bringing you know your daughter in and it's a question I often get asked about you know how do I be with my teenagers around all of this I know that's you could do a whole podcast interview on that alone but I'd love to hear some of your wisdom 
um, for that, particularly in these times, my daughter's like 10 years older, so she's been a teenager in a different climate. So I'd love to hear some of your wisdom on that. Yeah, I know it is a very popular topic. I get it, I get asked about it a lot too. Um, and I think a lot of what I've said up to this point really applies, but I'll try to summarize it in a little bit different of a way. First of all, it's not what you say, it's what you're conveying as you say it. So sometimes people think, well, I just need the right information because my parents either didn't talk to me about this or they just gave me a sex talk or they just told me not to get pregnant. And so, you know, what do I need to say kind of thing? It's a lot less of what you say and it's how you say it. And it's also about your own comfort level and your own relationship to your own eroticism just in general. So if you've decided for yourself, uh, I've talked to several women lately who are like, I'm just done with sex. Like I'm going to stay married, but like that part of my life is over. I'm fine with it. If that's who you, that's what you've decided, but you're trying to give your child a decent sexual education, it's not going to work. Because we don't, sure, you can have certain periods of time where you feel less or more sexual, but sexuality is a part of who you are, regardless of how you're performing it. So if you're completely shut down to it, that's what you're communicating more than what you're saying. Uh, and I know that people don't believe that because I have friends who've been in sexless marriages for 18 years and they think their children aren't going to perceive that or somehow... Their, their openness, their mental openness is somehow going to overshadow the deal that they've struck. That's just not the case. It never is. So uh, either that's good news or bad news to someone listening, right? <laughs> like either you go like, okay, good, because like I am relatively comfortable. And if you're relatively comfortable, that shows through to your children. Um, as far as like facts, I just think there's just really only a few that people need to know. And one of them is this arousal time. Like it's important that females know this, what we've labeled as foreplay isn't foreplay. It's, it's sex. It's not, it's not like the default thing, like, oh, bummer that you're a girl and it just takes longer to warm up because it's just better to be fast and already warmed up. No, they need to know that. And, um, everybody's children develop at different rates. And also, you know, it's really specific to have one parent and one child. So I have a lot of closeness with my daughter that people who have more children or more people around, they are probably still close, but my daughter's overheard a lot of conversations and I have a podcast called Sex, Birth and Trauma. So she's heard a lot of conversations about all kinds of things. But I would still say that I, I like the peppering approach where you just drop in facts that are about sex frequently. So you're not just like, now we're talking about <laughs> sex, you know, sit down. Like I used to just, I knew when that was coming from my parents and I was just, I would just be cringing like, oh no, I can tell my mom's going to like, this is the day, like she's going to talk to me about this. <laughs> So I just will just be like, oh yeah, herpes, da, 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 da. And I'll just, then I'll just go on with another conversation. I don't like hyper-specialize the sexual material. I just like, and then I, I ask, like, I ask her, I'm like, oh, is so-and-so having sex with so-and-so? Cause she'll say, oh, well, this guy's acting this way and this way. And I'll be like, oh, okay, well she slept with him, right? Like, um, oh yeah, I get that, you know? And then just kind of talk to her with how behavior works. 
a lot of the time and what the messages we're sending. And I mean, all of Jaguar is about the words that you say, your vocal tone, your facial expressions and your body language and coming into coherence with those things. So I talk, I mean, essentially that's like not sent I mean, another way to say it is like, don't send mixed messages. And if you send mixed messages and you don't know it, because a lot of times that's what's happening, we don't know we're sending mixed messages, then you get weird behavior coming back to you and you don't understand like, well, why do I keep attracting this kind of person? Or why do I always date people who do X, Y, or Z? Or why don't I choose people well? Or why, when I say no, people don't listen or whatever it is. Um, so I teach her that, you know, and I reflect that back to her. Oh, I see that you're saying this, but I notice you're doing this. And she's gone through phases where she said like, oh God, like there's no guys at my school who were ever going to like me because they just like girls that are like this, this, and this. And it's like, well, you go to a school with 2,500 people and I can't possibly, I know that there's other boys in your school that feel the exact same way that you feel and feel like there's no girls that would like them based on how they look or what they think or all those things. And kind of continually coming back to the human part of things, because it's not just about finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a them's bend or whatever. It's also about how you approach other people and, and what, I mean, she's Brazilian. So she, she was saying to me that it's really relieving to her. She's got, she's dating someone who's Mexican right now. And she's just like, it's so nice because the physical affection is so normal and it doesn't feel like it's this big obstacle or like that you have to worry that it's too much. Uh, but, you know, as a body worker too, it's just, I've just worked with people and so many people when I've touched them is like, wow, I've never just felt like really present touch. And touch is, seems to be coming something that's more and more charged, right? Even like someone just putting an arm on a shoulder or this recent Dalai Lama bullshit that went on that I was like, I cannot believe how quick people are to forget someone's entire history, mistranslate something, and then decide someone's also a perpetrator because it's like people are looking for a reason to discredit anyone and to not believe that there's like good really. Um, and that everybody that has a position of power is just abusing it. And so I think power has a negative connotation now. And yet, isn't that what I'm teaching women how to, how to find their power? So I want men to find their power. And I want, I want everyone to find their power. Because to me, power is not a negative word. Power is a physical word. Power is, I have a sense that I can move in the way that I want to move and that I, I can, I have a level of coherence that I can trust my instincts. I can trust my responses. Um, I don't have to second guess everything that comes out of my mouth. I don't have to second guess every desire that I have or no, don't have, right. That I can just kind of coming back to where we began that I, I can be where I am and trust that where I am is okay and enough. And then when I do that, I might see that the next step is revealed to me. 
Mm. Yeah, thank you. And you said just to sort of bring it full circle. So for people who are listening and, you know, are curious to explore more mm. around sex, whether they're whether it's single, whether they're lovers, partners, whatever. I'm not looking for five top tips, <laughs> but you mentioned some things like slowing down. So I love to just offer some practical wisdom that people can maybe experiment and explore with just to finish. Mm -hmm. Well, what I did was I, so when I left my daughter's father, when she was around two, and I realized, okay, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have this relationship of mother, father, child, family that I thought I was going to have. And my daughter's two years old and I'm exhausted and I'm now a breadwinner and her dad left her life for the most part. So how am I going to do this? Because I, I'm working full time. I have to get a, I don't want to put her with a babysitter at night because I had a kid so I could raise a kid. But I also don't want to decide, okay, I'm just not going to be sexual until she graduates from high school, because that's what a lot of like the people that I knew who are single parents, that's kind of what they were deciding. Like, okay, well, there goes my sexuality and I'll just, you know, wait until now my child is my first priority and my child is my first priority and has been. But I also was like, okay, now I'm going to have to find an erotic identity outside of being a wife and being a mom and, and this thing that felt like it was kind of the thing I was supposed to do and the thing that I'd been programmed, you know, that I really wanted. I wanted that thing. I wanted, I'm, I'm very unconventional in a lot of ways and I'm very conventional in other ways. So I was really happy with that. And that's what I was aiming towards. In fact, I'd like ruined a ton of relationships up to that point because I just always wanted to get to the kid and get to the family life. So I started to tease apart what, what is sex for me? And so, okay, it's pleasure, it's play, it's contact with masculine energy, it's attachment, companionship, um, and like what are all the strands that go into what feels like sex? Because I knew... I wasn't, I didn't think I was a person who could have like one night stands and I couldn't really figure out how I was going to date. So I just started to think, well, what am I curious about? And at the time there was a photographer, I lived in Rio and, and he was doing a project where he would take nude photos of women just on this one wall. And they were really different and they were really, I was really compelled by it. So I wrote him and said, like, could I shoot with you? But knowing at the time it was going to go online, this was like 2009 or something. And I was a yoga, like a pretty famous yoga teacher in Brazil. So I was like, this is going to be weird. Like I'm a spirit, I'm supposed to be like a spiritual teacher, but then I'm taking nude photos. Like, is that okay? And should I do that? And is this even a safe thing to do? And um, so I went and shot with him and then that kind of, turned into an erotic relationship but without too much contact just through the, like the tension of being seen and the polarity of that and then I learned about orgasmic meditation and I read the book slow sex by Nicole Daydone and I um 
was like, oh man, could I do this genital touch practice with someone that I don't know very well? And like, does that, is that, is that okay? Does that mean, what does that mean about me? Um, like I, I am curious and I want to do it, but I'd rather do it with someone I know, but I don't know anyone. So then I just, it's like, okay, am I brave enough to like ask someone to do this with me? And then it was like, okay, try that with a couple of people. It worked okay, not great because it's not really, you can't really train someone else to do it. They sort of have to learn on their own if you're going to be in that dynamic. And, but I, I used that practice for a couple of years in different ways to uncouple attachment and like notice like, wow, just feeling those feelings of pleasure, I automatically start to feel feelings of emotional connection and attachment. That's not a bad thing, but also like maybe there's something for me to learn there. Then I actually did have a one night stand that was really connected and it was with someone who had come internationally. So it also didn't, I knew I couldn't get attached because I knew he was going to leave anyway, but it was an incredible night. And I, my stereotype of it was like, oh, this is just something you do when you're like drunk, disconnected, like um, you are using one another. And in fact, it was like really beautiful, great evening. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's interesting. And so I just started and then my, you know, exploring my sexuality with myself and what did I like and, and a lot of grief there too, because I really did want to have a partner. And so like continuing my own curiosity with myself, but also it, it did entail a lot of pain and grief of the earlier relationships and things like that. And then, you know, on and off dating at different times and with different intentions. So I think it really depends on, you know, when people are already partnered, then I love, I mean, I've done a lot of work with the wheel of consent, Betty Martin's work. And um, that's the three minute game has been really helpful for me, both in and out of relationships. And anyone can, she has a lot of free material on her website about how to play that. Um, I also, you know, people are like, oh, I could never date online. I met my husband online. I didn't want to date online. I've had, I have never had terrible experiences online, but I've had a lot of weird ones. Um, but, you know, life is weird and I'm weird. So it's like, but I've had a, a couple like interplanetary experiences, like meeting someone and just being like, I don't think we come from this. Like we're, <laughs> I guess we, we diverged on some earlier evolutionary branch. Um, so yeah, I think that it's sad. It's sad to me to hear that 45% of Americans have given up on relationship. And I'm not surprised because I hear it a lot and I, I don't want to like tell other people's business, but I, I know a very well-known spiritual teacher who's in her seventies and she has a boyfriend. And I asked a devotee of hers, like, how'd you get a boyfriend? And she's like, Tinder. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> get the F out. Like, are you <laughs> kidding me right now? And it just fractured all of my earlier ideas. And so now anyone who's like, Oh, I hate, I hate dating online. I just, am like, well, so-and-so um, has a boyfriend. And if, you know, this llama can have a boyfriend from Tinder. Like, I'm sure you can find somebody. Cause like, I just, I still can't get it through my head how this llama went on. Like, I'm like, did she put llama in her dating profile? Like <laughs> how exactly did that go? Um, but 
I do have a feeling that in my experience has been, I don't think there's just one person for everyone. And I think that when you are confident in yourself, not impenetrable, not, you know, overly confident, but when you can communicate about what you like and how things are making you feel, there's actually a lot of people that could be fun to relate with. And um, it doesn't, I know it doesn't always feel that way. And we always have a million reasons why, right? Because like I lived in San Diego and I was like, oh, there's just nobody here in San Diego. So then I moved to New York and then everybody in New York's like, oh, dating in New York is terrible. And I'm thinking, how can dating in New York be terrible? There's like 12 million people here of every nationality, every age, like, come on. Um, but you know, wherever people live, it's like, oh, this is like a terrible place to find people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and people, you know, we have Tobin in common and he's like, yeah, for women, it's really finding a great man's really like a needle in the haystack kind of thing. But I don't know. My experience is that, um, it's not all, I don't really believe in the law of attraction, but it's not all just who we are and the vibes that we put out. But there is something about keeping oneself. I mean, that was the best part of orgasmic meditation for me was understanding what it meant to come to a date without intense physical arousal needs. Because then I was already had a level of sexual satisfaction when I was coming to a date, which made me very full and very um, sensual in a way but without needing that person to fill that as soon as possible, which is sort of how I felt before, because I would be like, you know, I'd go long periods of time without sexual contact. And then if I was like attracted to somebody, it was like, okay, like maybe this is going to work. And then all of the, all of the desires of long-term relationship and all of the weight would flood in with me rather than like, let's just see what this is and let it unravel in its own time. Is that specific enough? I mean, <laughs> I tend to go autobiographical just because yeah. I think that it's, um, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say, but I've written a few books so people can read the books, but um, there's not a pat answer because it's going to be different depending on what someone's life situation is. But I do know that almost everyone, even people who are disabled and have chronic illness, but people who don't, everyone thinks there's all these reasons why they're not good enough or they're not lovable or they're the one person who doesn't deserve. And when you're like us and we work on this side and we hear all those things, we know those things not to be true. That there's always, when you when you work to stay in touch with your eros and with your desires, there's oftentimes many possibilities for connecting that they may not fit your idea of what you think they should be, but they're there nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So any final wisdom that you'd love to share before we wrap up? I mean, I feel like I've kind of been all over the place this morning, but I guess I would just say that I think people are pretty connected to 
the urgency of maybe things like climate change or here in this country, gun laws and, and the things that we all know are, or many of us know are facing us right now. And some of those things we have agency in and some of those things we don't. But we do have agency in our relational lives, even if that's with ourselves. And there's a way to be kind without being a doormat. There's a way to practice kindness and include yourself in that kindness. And I would just urge people to court the kind of clarity without the rigidity and the harshness. Because the Instagram version of boundaries is a very immature, this idea that a goddess is like, that the only version of a goddess is kind of this badass, you know, sword wielding, take no prisoners type of archetype is really just the masculine refabricated. It's not really... That's not, it's one, there's many faces of the feminine, but I don't really like what I'm seeing when I'm hearing the version of setting boundaries that I feel is like the most, that's talking the loudest right now. And owning one's power has nothing to do with belittling other people. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Someone who occupies their own power and perceives it has no need to belittle anyone else or take it at the expense of anyone else. So beware of these replacements, matriarchy instead of patriarchy. Uh, the real feminine is outside of those kinds of frameworks. thank you so much thank you thank you and where can people find you online where's the i'll put everything in the show notes but just to orientate people to the best places uh the my full name is kimberly ann johnson so that's my website kimberly um if you're interested in more of the mothering stuff it's mothercircle.com and then on instagram same thing kimberly but kimberly period and period Johnson and then my podcast is sex birth trauma yeah highly recommend your podcast well and your and all your work as well so thank you so much for bringing your presence your wisdom to today I really appreciate your time thank you so much thank you Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one -one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. 
wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day. 